Well, good morning and welcome to the first Sunday of Advent into our Leeward campus. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson. We are uh, very glad you're here and I hope you are uh, getting in the Christmas spirit of the season. One of the things of Christmas spirit is to uh, pick your favorite Christmas movies, right? And uh, if I were to tell you my favorite Christmas movie, what would you think of me? Uh, Well, let me just uh, tell you what it is. You may be thinking my favorite Christmas movie is A Christmas Story. I mean, that's, that's a pretty safe one, right? Or uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a pretty good one, huh? What if I told you it's What About Bob? <laughs> now, you may be thinking, if you've seen this awesome movie, you may be thinking, Tom, what about Bob? I mean, there's no Christmas presents, no trees. You know, you've lost your marbles. You already know I'm a terrible movie critic if you've been around Christ for a while. But I want to suggest to you that even though they're not symbols of Christmas in this story, that it really is a Christmas story with a Christmas message. If you've not seen the movie, you must. It's an Advent important movie. But let me just tell you a little bit about it because I think it's Bill Murray's best. The story is about Bill Murray, who is called, in the movie, Bob Wiley, such as, what about Bob? And uh, as Bob Wiley says to his psychiatrist, he has problems. And all of us can relate to that, right? Bob Wiley has lots of problems, and uh, he attaches himself to his psychiatrist, Leo Marvin. Bob has this insatiable longing as a loner to belong right? If you've seen the movie. So much so, he manipulates circumstances and finds himself, much to the chagrin of his psychiatrist's family, on vacation with, as Bob says, the fam. He hangs out with Richard Dreyfuss and his family, Dr. Marvin, and he even eats with them. He puts on the son's clothes. He sails. I'm sailing. He sails with his family. And at the end of the movie, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to tell you all the details, but he really does sort of enter into the fam. What I love about this movie is that it is not only humorous, and I just love this story, but it is also very moving because Bob longs to belong, and all of us can relate to Bob. All of us have this deep longing, right, to belong. I'm reminded of that often, especially when I go, what happened to the KU rock chalk chalk earlier? But when I go to a KU game, <laughs> I, I wasn't a student at KU. But when I go to a KU basketball game with my wife, who is a hardcore rock chalker, all of a sudden we're in this storied arena, right? Where basketball was sort of designed or something like that, right? And there are all kinds of strangers, thousands of them around me, screaming and hollering. We even stand up and sing the alma mater to great KOKU. I do the same thing. I scream, I holler, I yell. I'm a a fan. And all these people, I had no idea who they are. We are all one big fam. Have you noticed? I mean, if they lose, we lose. If they win, we win. Like, we're national champions. Why is that? Because all of us long to belong. We have this deep hunger to feel apart. We all want to fit in. Now, 
Kids, if you are at recess, and I remember being at recess and not being picked to be on the baseball team or the game, how do you feel? You feel like an outsider in an insider world. That is a very painful thing. One of the most painful experiences of the human life is to feel like an outsider in an insider world, to not fit in. And students, I remember when my eighth grade year, I moved to a new school. Some of you moved to a new school, you know how brutal that is. I mean, you feel like the ultimate outsider walking in. Everybody knows everybody. You sit at the lunch table by yourself. Or you know what it's like if you are not friended on Facebook or even worse, defriended. So all of us want to feel a part. If you are single in our culture, often our culture is very much tied to couples. And so you go to a party, maybe a Christmas party, and everybody seems to all be connected, all couples, and you're like the third wheel. And it's easy for us to say in a flippant way, three's company, or two's company, three's a crowd, but to experience it is very painful. All of us have a deep longing to belong. And to not belong is one of the wounds of the human soul that is most painful. The Apostle Paul, as he unpacks this brilliant letter to the Romans, addresses the deep longing for belonging we have been created to have. And he connects it to the great truth that is embedded in the Christmas story. Now often around Christmas, right, we focus on Black Friday. It looks like you survived it. (laughs) Or Cyber Monday. I mean, we focus on Christmas as a time for gaining more belongings. But what we must understand is the message of the manger is not about more belongings. It is about experiencing true belonging. And the Apostle Paul, in this marvelous book we call Romans, that we're looking at in this Advent series, addresses this very need. Because the bigger story surrounding the Bethlehem manger is a conspiracy of love that involves you and me recovering our true sense of belonging. That which we were created to experience in the garden with God and with others, and that that has been lost by sin. The Apostle Paul in the 8th chapter of Romans addresses this. I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bible this morning, to Romans chapter 8, whether it's electronic or pages. I'd like you to turn there in the book of Romans. Last week, Pastor Reed did a marvelous job unpacking our first 11 verses in our series. And Reed mentioned to us that the gospel, the good news of Christmas, the good news of Christ, tells us in the first 11 verses Paul emphasizes in this text that we have been given a brand new life. And now in verses 12 through 17, we are going to see that not only are we given a new life, we are invited into a brand new family where we truly belong. Now, Paul's genre in this kind of literature, unlike narrative literature, is deeply connected by logical connections. There's like little links in the chain. So in these verses, we have three key links that help us understand the richness of the text we're going to look at, okay? And this is how it unpacks. First, Paul will say, as he connects verses 1 through 11, with a little logical inference called so then. It's like a chain of connection. Because we've given this new life, now we are invited to a new family. Being part of this new family, he will say, first of all, in 12, 13, and 14, means that we have been given a new freedom, a new freedom. 
Then he transitions from 12, 13, and 14, then 15 and 16, to say that we have been given in this new family a new status, new freedom, new status. And then he builds in his collection a progressive thought in verse 17 that we have been given a new security. So as we follow along of Paul's thought, as we look at this marvelous text, we will flow from new freedom, new status, to new security. Let's dump, drive, or jump in, sorry, uh, drive in. I don't know where I am. It's not a drive-in church. Uh, <laughs> strange things happen in my brain. Uh, I don't know what it is. First of all, our new freedom, verses 12 through 14. Here is this logical connection. Do you see how specific? So then, what he said before, that we have a new life. So then, brothers or brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. So what Paul is saying is this new life the gospel makes possible, a new life of forgiveness, a new creation life, welcomes us into a new kind of freedom. You will notice the imagery of verse 12 as one of enslavement. You see that. Some translations highlight this more as an obligation or a debtor. But this is the idea. Paul is saying, if we embrace the gospel, we have a new freedom. A new freedom that allows us to say no to sin and yes to God. We are now not slaves to sin. We can say yes to God. We can live the life we were designed to live way back in the Garden of Eden. That's what he's saying. Now, notice the words flesh and body, and this gets really confusing. And all I want to say there is that these are interchangeable ideas, even though they're different Greek words. Paul is using this to describe not that God is down on our physical body, quite the contrary. God made our bodies good. But our sinful nature is expressed through our physical actions. And so he brings deeds and flesh together. It's the idea of a sinful nature. That's the idea. Our sinful nature expresses itself. And sin, Paul says, entices us and then deceives us. Sometimes we have different ideas of sin. But what Paul is saying here is sin has a quality to it. Or we might say a deviousness to it. It not only entices us. I mean, we wouldn't sin if it wasn't appealing, right? It entices us with the promises of a certain kind of freedom. Usually it's do your own thing. Why be constrained by God's design? and a master Jesus, do your own thing. It's a picture of freedom, but it's a counterfeit freedom. And sin entices us with this idea of a counterfeit freedom, but what Paul is saying, instead of really freeing us to live the life we were designed to live, to flourish in all dimensions, it enslaves us. Sin has an enslaving quality to it. This is the picture he gives us here. It binds us in heavy chains. Christmas is a time, you know, we watch our favorite Christmas movies. We have our traditions. And one of our family traditions that we often enjoy is to go see a live performance at the Kansas City Rep of the Christmas Carol. Charles Dickens' great classic. I don't know how many times I've seen it. You know, how many times you've seen it? Lots, right? It's great. And every time I see it, there's a certain place in the Christmas Carol, it sort of touches my heart. I sort of get a little teary. And Pastor Tom sometimes gets teary. If you've been around Christmas, you know I'm kind of a crier. But there's one place I just get a little choked up. It's when Ebenezer Scrooge is uh, forced to encounter his former partner, Marley, as a ghost. 
Remember Marley? Marley is presented to Ebenezer Scrooge wrapped in all kinds of chains. You remember that? Just chains everywhere. And Charles Dickens in his actual book really is amazing at this conversation between Scrooge and Marley. Often in the presentations, we don't have all the the narrative, but listen to Dickens' actual narrative here. A distraught Scrooge is encountering Marley all enslaved in heavy clanking chains. It's the picture. Dickens writes of Marley. Marley says, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Charles Dickens is not known for being an astute theologian, brilliant literary writer, but he is very astute here. In fact, he embeds his dialogue in a theological irony. What is that? Well, Marley really believed he had true freedom. He had freedom to choose his own independent life. But progressively, his choices actually enslaved him. And this is what Paul is saying in chapter 8. That sin enslaves us. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul reminds us of the glorious news of the gospel. That the cross breaks the chains. Today, we were very blessed to hear Shar sing one of my favorite Christmas carols, O Holy Night. It was written by John Dwight. And did you hear the words that she so beautifully sang? John Dwight says in his writing, his classic carol, Chains shall he break, for the slave is our The message of the manger is we can say no to sin. We do not have to be enslaved to sin. We are free to choose to put the deeds of of our sinful body to death. We don't have to sin anymore like that. We have a new freedom, and the Holy Spirit can lead us. Why? Because now we are part of a new family. And notice where Paul goes next. Not only a new freedom, but a new status. Look at me at verses 15 through 16. Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery, he's always following that theme, to fall back into fear, cower as a slave is the idea, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom you cry out, Abba, Father, and the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Paul presses into the good news of the gospel. He says, now we are no longer slaves to sin, we are not slaves, we are sons. But what drives his ideas, what connects his chain of progressive thought, is this word picture of adoption. This drives his thinking. What does he have in mind? Now, many of us have experienced adoption in different ways, right? In our cultural context, we may have adopted a child. And in our congregation, a number of you have adopted children. And it's a glorious thing, isn't it? Some of you may be an adopted child or an adopted person as an adult. And I remember being at an adoption ceremony once where someone was officially adopted. It's an amazing thing in a courtroom. Maybe you've been there, right? I see some nods. It's like all of a sudden, when you leave that courtroom, you have a new name. Everything is different. 
and you have goosebumps. But what does Paul have in mind as he writes in the first century to the Roman culture about being adopted? What's he comparing? What's, what picture is he putting in his reader's mind that he wants us to move from our minds to our hearts? Let's go back to the first century. Come with me for a moment. Back in the first century, the Roman Empire was the king on the hill. They conquered many lands, and with that came slaves. Many Romans had slaves, especially aristocratic Romans, many slaves in their household. In a Roman world, once you were a slave, you were always a slave. You you belonged to the family. You never belonged in the family. There was no moving up in the world. But there was one exception under Roman law. And that exception was when the head of the household, a family, had no sons and no legal way to pass the wealth, the name, all the way down to the next generation. So Roman law allowed something to take place. It was called adoption. When a slave was chosen to be a son. Now imagine with me, if you would, that you are a slave in the first century Roman household. You're going to work every day, doing all this thing. You've always felt like a second-class citizen. You've always belonged to the family, not been a part of the family. Imagine how you would feel. But one day, the head of the household comes to you and says, come with me. Most of us, when someone says, come with me, like a principal or something, we're in trouble, right? Not in your life. You are ushered into the family private quarters. The family's all there. Maybe they even give you a hug, and you're like, what's this? Next to the head of the household is the Roman attorney. He has all the papers laid out, and you are informed that you are now being invited to be a son, the heir of the whole family fortune and name. You sign your name and you are given new clothes and one of the things is a new bed to sleep in. That morning, you woke up as a slave. You went to bed and laid your head on a pillow, a really fine silk pillow, as a son. You wouldn't have wanted to go to sleep that night, right? Why? It's just a dream. But it wasn't a dream. Paul is taking that picture that all his readers knew intimately in their cultural context, and he is saying, the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the manger is that you were once a slave and now you have been adopted into God's family. You are a son. You are a daughter. This is the good news. The gospel is not some wish dream. And notice, if you were adopted as a slave, there was nothing you had ever done to be deserving of that. You were adopted simply because of the grace and favor of the one who adopted you, someone else. The good news of Christ, it's all about grace. 
is not something we do deserve to be adopted. It is what God has done for us in Christ. And Paul unpacks the idea of now part of the family, you have unimaginable access to God, to God's family. You have unimaginable intimacy and power because you are a part of the fam. And this is where he goes. In fact, he uses, if you'll notice the text, in verse 15, he uses a little phrase that's very hard to translate in English. People do papa, daddy, eh, doesn't do it. We just don't have a word that captures it. But it is unusual, and the readers would have said, wow, that's strange, because in Scripture, very few times, there's just like two or three times this, word, this phrase is ever used. But it's used by our Lord Jesus. Where? Do you remember? It's used when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating, dro- Gethsemane, sweating stro- drops of blood, praying to his Father, and he says, Abba, Father, in fervent prayer, Paul brings this allusion to mind. The original readers reading the Greek would have understood this. The word cry is the same idea. It's intense fervency of access. So Paul is connecting this text to Jesus in the garden. What is amazing is that the Jewish people of the first century would have never approached God like this. God was always transcendent and glorious, but he wasn't a part Fam language. It's not fam language. So Paul is saying that you and I are adopted into the family of God when we embrace the gospel. We have extraordinary access, intimacy, and power. And notice the text says that this picture of access is not perfunctory on God's part. It's not reluctant. It's a joyful, loving embrace who God the Father loves to hear, Abba Father, for him as adopted sons and daughters. Paul in Galatians, his writing to Galatians, connects the image of the manger to our adoption. Do you know that? The Christmas story. He emphasizes Abba Father. Notice in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Let me read that to you. But when the fullness of time had come, this is a picture of the incarnation. This is an allusion to the manger, okay, in redemptive history. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Do you see that? Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we may receive adoption as sons. Do you see that? And then he says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying out, Abba, Father. So again, he he brings it home. So you are no longer a slave. You are a son. And if a son, then an heir. An heir? Wow. He says, the gospel tells us we are a part of God's family. We are no longer an outsider. We are the most ultimate insiders. We truly belong to God's family, but do we really believe it, dear friends? Many of us spend so much of our mental energy and time trying to fit in with others. Whether it's at school, being cool. Whether it's at work or our neighborhood or what we buy. We do all kinds of crazy things just to feel like we fit in, right? But that sense of belonging we need to have fulfilled in our life will never be fulfilled in a human dimension, no matter how wonderful the club is, how good of friends we have, or what a wonderful family we have. It is only found in the cross. Because what we lost in the garden, that sense of belonging our hearts long for, with God and with his people, and in creation, is only restored in the cross. 
And this is what Paul is saying. Yet we look in so many other places to try to feel like we fit in. So Paul is saying we have new freedom in this family. Wow, we have a new status. But notice the building that we have a new kind of security. It's in verse 17. This is where Paul is going. And he says, and if children, notice the logic, if you were a child of the family, then you are heirs. But notice, and this is way above my pay grade. I don't understand this. This is a mind blower. We are heirs, you and me, of God himself and fellow heirs of Christ. And as he says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So the idea here is that if we are children of God, if we are adopted into his family, if we have embraced the gospel and experienced forgiveness and new life, we have new freedom, a new status, and we have an inheritance that is mind-blowing. How many of you got caught up? Be honest. You don't have to raise your hand. How many got caught up in lottery fever this week? Powerball. I mean, maybe some of you are so rich it doesn't matter, but it's like, I just like, whoa, 589 million, that's a lot of money. And all around the country, it was raving about it, right? Everybody's buying tickets. It was like, it was a madness. And I found myself, I, I mean, I hope you come back next week. I found myself thinking, what if I won the lottery? You ever played that game? I mean, like, I didn't buy a ticket. Maybe I will someday. I mean, I hope that doesn't make you upset, but I just like, well, that'd be cool. I mean, I mean, pastors, can't we feel that way too? I mean, anyway. But I, I just like, wow, it just, sort of, it just sort of grabbed me, you know? And can you imagine Thursday morning when Mark and Cindy Hill of Dearborn, Dearborn, I guess what they call it, Missouri, which is not far from Kansas City, they, they woke up, they woke up, and, and Cindy's been unemployed. I mean, they woke up with meager resources. They went to bed, I mean, mega millions, 294 million to be exact. And you know, you heard all these interviews, you probably read this stuff, but one of the things that stood out to me as I, as I watched this, as I looked at this wonderful family, I'm sure they're wonderful, is their little girl, Jaden. Did you hear the story? Jaden was adopted from China, penniless in an orphanage some years ago. And she was taken from that world to the United States and to be a part of a new family, given a new name, a new family. Did she ever imagine that she would be the recipient not only of a new name, a new family, new love and tenderness, but she would be an heir to a fortune. <laughs> I mean, she's not only, she's cute as a button. Can you just imagine how her world has changed? And then I thought, you know, that is small potatoes compared to you and me. Because the God of the universe who owns it all, that's real wealth, spiritual, material, all of it has adopted you into his family. You're a Powerball lottery pick plus. We often forget that, don't we? Paul's use of a metaphor here is a bit distant to us. How many of you are fans of Downton Abbey? I I didn't even know about it a couple years ago. (laughs) But this summer, we got the back 
two years. It's the third season. It's starting in January, and it's the rage of this PBS special. It's an amazing thing. It hooked me right away. And the story is about this family in early 20th century England. And the lead guy there is Lord Grantham. He's the big, big cheese. And he's got a wonderful family. He has all daughters. And in that cultural context, he's got a concern. Who's going to carry on the riches, the wealth, the family, everything is life, not just wealth, everything he believes in. And so part of the challenge in the good writing of this story that's so invigorating is he's wrestling with who is going to be his heir. And this gentleman, one, two, from the lady, the next one is Matthew Crawley. And part of the story is this is a distant, distant relative. And Lord Grantham loves this guy and wants him to be the heir. And the story builds with all kinds of tension. Well, this picture of adoption is much more what Paul has in mind. It has the mind of not only material wealth, but spiritual wealth and furthering the name and furthering the glory of God as being part of his family. That's the picture. And in it is a stewardship of this inheritance that is a part of having this legacy. We need to remind ourselves that the most wealthy person in the world is not someone who's won the Powerball lottery, but one who is adopted, adopted by Christ adopted by the Heavenly Father, and who receives his unconditional and affectionate love. This is what Paul is saying. Paul contemplates the great security of the love we have, the unconditional love that we are his beloved in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Listen to this text. It is so beautiful. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Notice what the text says. In love. He predestined us for, there's that word, adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us, notice the phrase, in the beloved. If we've embraced the gospel, we have new life, we have forgiveness, we've been invited to a brand new family, we have new freedom, new status, and new security. So where are you looking for your security this morning? Where are you looking to fit in for that sense of belonging and security? Do you look for security in your net worth, the size of your 401k, your work, your grades, your class rank, Do you look forward in our government, our economic system, your close relationships? It doesn't take long to live. You know they're very insecure. Business can be gone. Customers can be gone. Friends can be gone. Money can be gone. So where should we look for security? The message of Christmas addresses that. Through the truths of the gospel tell us that we have a grand inheritance grand inheritance, we are extraordinarily wealthy. Horatio Spafford captures our security this way in the great hymn, It Is Well. He writes these words, that Christ has regarded our helpless estate and shed his own blood for our souls. That's it. That's it. The good news of the gospel, dear friends, is not only you have been forgiven in Christ if you've embraced him by faith and repentance, but you have brought into the most extraordinary family and you are God's beloved. 
You are God's beloved. Henry Nouwen, who comes from another faith tradition, really gets this right. In one of his Advent meditations, he writes these words. He says, Jesus' whole message, listen carefully, is to say that you are God's beloved child. When you can hear in your heart and not in your head that you are truly God's beloved son or daughter, everything turns around. Many of us this morning have heard that we are God's child. And it's really only our head, but not in our heart. And this morning, you need to, I need to grab on with the tenacity of faith to this truth and hold on for dear life at heart level. And the tragedy, the tragedy is that many of us who have embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior live lonely lives. We live insecure lives. We live prayerless lives. And we belong to God's family. We live like paupers when we are princes. If you know Christ, if you've embraced him, you are a part of his family. And you have an extraordinary security. Much more than even a Powerball lottery can ever give you. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to give a place, make a place for you. There's a great home that you're going you're to experience someday. The end of the Bible, Revelation 21, gives us a picture of this new heaven and new earth. And we live in the time between, between Jesus' first coming and his second, when he will take us home. And when we'll experience fully what it means to be a part of his family. And we will experience the kind of belovedness that our hearts long for, the sense of belonging. Jesus told a story, it's a familiar story, but we miss some of it. Story of the prodigal son. Remember that story? A young man does the unthinkable to his family, takes all the inheritance, goes to a far country, squanders it. He ends up in a pigsty with nothing. Starving and hungry, and the text says he comes to his senses. And he says to himself, I can at least go back home and be a slave. So in humility and repentance, he goes back to his father. His father's waiting for him. Runs and embraces him with open arms. And the text says, he says to his dad, I don't deserve to be your son. He says, I should be a slave. That's the picture. And his dad will have none of it. He puts all the signs of sonship around him and welcomes him home because once a son, always a son in God's family. He says, son, come home. You are beloved. You are safe and secure here. So my challenge for all of us this morning You and I long to belong. We have a deep sense of longing for home. To be a part of God's family and Jesus waits with open arms as the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit does to welcome you home. He's waiting for you with open arms.
You may have been in church all your life. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you feel like the ultimate outsider even when you're with people. Maybe you feel like the ultimate outsider in church. Let me just assure you that based on the authority of God's word, the one who died for you on that cross knows you and loves you with his nail-scarred hands. He reaches out to you and he says, come home. Come home, son or daughter. You are loved here. You are safe here. You are cherished here. So my question this morning is, will we come home for Christmas? Will you be truly at home for the holidays? This Christmas may be filled with loss and stress, but you can be home for the holidays. If you are focused on your true belonging rather than your belongings, and some of us are spending way too much time focusing on our belongings and forgetting our belonging. And let me just say, I think one of the challenges is that Christmas time is a time we think about family, right? It's a good thing. <clears throat> Families are good things, and they're a mess. They're a mixed bag, all of us. But let me say something that I don't want anyone to miss this morning. Families are important, but they are not what is most ultimate in your life and mine. If you are looking for your sense of belonging in your family, you will ultimately be disappointed. Why? Because you were created with another family in mind, one that the gospel makes possible. This Christmas is a foretaste of what family life will one day be. I love ice cream. I love ice cream a lot. Everywhere I go, I eat ice cream. It's one of my vices. What I love about ice cream stores is they give you a taste before you order. At Baskin Robbins, it's a pink spoon. It's a little sign of heaven. (laughs) Right? And they hand it to you, a little dab of ice cream, and go, wow, I want more. Paul is handing us this morning a little pink spoon. And he's saying, have a taste of the family of God. It's the church Jesus has called you to. But it's just a foretaste of the family that you will experience one day. So I think Jesus is saying to all of us this morning, through his holy word, he is saying, will you come home? You are my beloved You belong here. You are loved here. So welcome home. Let's pray. Father, wherever we are this morning, if we're in a far country, even if we're in a far country when we're in a home country, may you speak into our lives this morning that the truths of the gospel, the message of the manger is the deepest longings of our heart for belonging are found in you. What we lost in the garden, you've restored in the cross. And we will one day fully experience in the new heavens and earth. Thanks for the foretaste. In Jesus' name.